0: Welcome to the Bloom Scrolling Podcast. Hi, I'm Monica.
1: And I'm Dylan. We hope to inspire our listeners by giving a platform to those doing important work in service to others.
0: We believe that even the smallest actions can help invoke lasting change. Less doom, more bloom.
1: In our very first episode today, Kintsuki, The Art of Recovery, we're talking to my good friend, Isabel Serafin. Uh, She's a great friend of mine. She's a certified recovery coach who's been working in addiction treatment for the past two years, both in sober living settings and residential substance use treatment. She also has six years of experience working in the municipal and state politics in various capacities.
0: Isabel identifies as a queer woman of color, as well as a person in sustained long-term recovery. Isabel also serves as a board member for Colorado Artists in Recovery, a statewide nonprofit which facilitates arts and wellness programming for people seeking recovery from addiction and mental health issues.
1: And I want to thank you all for being here. We had a lot of fun doing this, and we're looking forward to making more episodes soon, so stay tuned. All right, so welcome to the very first episode of Bloom Scrolling. You are our very first guest. Who are you?
2: Esteemed. Um, <laughs> uh, my name is Isabel Serafin. Um, professionally, I work as a clinical case manager at a residential substance use treatment center. I am also a person in long-term recovery Mostly from alcohol, but I consider myself an equal opportunity drug user. Um, And I've got a little less than two and a half years sober. Um, I've done some work in the political world. um, And also I work with Dylan, which is how we know each other. Hi. Hi. What do you do at the Residential Substance Use Treatment Center that we work at?
1: At the Residential Substance Use Treatment (laughs) Center that we work at. um, I do detox counseling, uh, do a lot of intake assessments, um, do a lot of bickering back and forth with you.
2: Yeah, actually.
1: (laughs) Um, I also run the young adult group. Which is a lot of fun. And also the Hope the Hope Group, which is our our opioid group that we do. Um, which works because I'm in recovery from opiate addiction. I have all the five years sober in June, which is really cool. And don't clap. <laughs> We're recording.
0: Congratulations, <laughs> both of you. Thank you. You can keep going. I interrupted. I'm sorry.
1: It's it's oh, it's all right. I'll cut all this together.
0: <laughs> I don't think you should.
1: <laughs> okay. Um. So, yeah, I've been. At
2: <laughs> fuck. <laughs> you can bleep it. You're doing the post. Just bleep the name.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Continue. Bleep.
2: You've been at the Residential Substance Use Treatment Center for how long?
1: I've been at this place <laughs> for, I think it'll be two years in March. Wow.
2: So, you've been there almost as long as I've been sober.
1: Yeah. uh, I think you were just leaving.
2: (laughs) Oh, my God. As a
1: client when I had showed up. I think it was probably just a few months. That's crazy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. But we had actually met quite a bit before that, before I started working there, too, because you, another thing that we have in common, I get, well, I don't know if I met you at the open mic nights, but. Uh, you work at another treatment center where I do work for one of the other organizations I'm involved in, which is Colorado Artists in Recovery. They put on free arts programming for people in recovery from mental health and substance use. And I MC the open mics there and you've played the open mics. I don't know if that's how I met you, but that is another thing that we have in common is being musicians more or less in recovery.
1: That's not how we met, but it's fine.
2: All right. Did I meet you? What well, came first? Is you performing at the open mic or because I've been at those open mics. Yeah. I 100% probably saw you there, but then I brought a meeting up to the treatment center.
1: I don't think you're at the, the one or two that I went to. Um, no, I met you
2: when you brought the, one of okay. the meetings up. Okay. Yeah. Because I'm also a member of 12-step. Which we also can't say by name. We I don't can? know
1: what step you're talking about.
2: <laughs> Why not? Um, anonymity oh. is the spiritual foundation of all of our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before our personalities. <laughs> 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 Are we <laughs> Well, we can say 12-step. Yeah. Well, I think that's important, too, because the treatment center we work at is 12-step-based, and that'll be part of what we talk about today, is like 12-step programs in general, whether it's CMA. Um, I can say I'm a member of one of them, probably. I think it's fine. How many steps are in your program? Twelve. Oh, cool. Okay. (laughs) Twelve steps.
0: Do you still do the open mics? Yeah. At at the other recovery centers? Mm -hmm. Is it treatment centers as well?
2: Cool. I do. Um, yeah, there's, there's like two that I regularly attend, but. Um, going to those open mics and having like an additional component to recovery besides just 12 step meetings and sober living and like the clinical piece of things, um, that was really important to me, feeling like I was a human being again and not just like, uh, I don't know, I think there is something about early recovery that can feel almost like. Dehumanizing, you're humbled pretty substantially, which is necessary. But I feel like engaging in in artistic spaces—that's where I started to get like um, my humanness back. I guess I don't know, Dylan. Would you say that that was your experience at all? Well,
1: I I got my first treatment job from showing up to that open mic which is kind of a cool story you know um just showed up and said hey i wasn't i or i'm in recovery and i wanted to work in the field and um it was lb actually i just
2: name dropped
1: <laughs> name dropped <laughs> I, I thought she should I thought, have
2: her on the pod she's great i thought
1: she said her name earlier but we weren't recording so sorry um anyway yeah i had, i just shot her shot her a text and, she said, yeah, we'd love to have you. And that was my first job in treatment. And also like I did my recovery skills today, um, which is all based around music as well. And, uh, just kind of, kind of going off of active listening and listening underneath, you know, listening to the lyrics, trying to see, Hey, what's this artist talking about? You know, like and obscure questions like what what color would the song be you know and make them think in a more creative way like a different way than they might not have before um answering questions like that and also just kind of just rediscovering a passion uh in in recovery is is huge you know like i talk about my music and my band and how integral integral that <laughs> and integral that is to my recovery you know having that outlet having that creative space, uh, the community of artists, which is really cool. And I don't know, just something really, um, fulfilling to spend your time on, you know, rather than whatever else we were doing out there running and gunning and being, uh, something
0: degenerates. Degenerates.
1: Thank you to society.
0: Did you, um, Did you like form your own model for your discovery skills class? Um, Is that something you came up with on your own or was there a template that was already in place?
1: Uh, It was all mine, actually. Uh, I I even made a, a form on Google Sheets. Or was it Word? Excel. Excel. Not important. I guess. But uh, yeah, no, I had a lot of fun coming up with the questions and they developed over time, you know, like it, it they they changed over time. I was a little too specific with some of the questions because I said things like, Oh, what, like, is this a major, or minor scale? And people were like, I don't know what that means. And, I'm, and then I was like, okay, remove that. What instruments do here? And the, all they know Is guitars and drums, you know, and so that was always the same answer, even though I might say that's all that there is. Yeah, because bass is irrelevant, (laughs) honestly, Uh, but not not to say that it's not it doesn't have its place. You know, I know you're learning bass right now. So,
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, Yeah. that's one thing about recovery is like endlessly picking up hobbies that I'll probably never finish. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to learn the bass, trying to learn the piano. Um mostly songwriting is what like helped me connect to my recovery though. I think there's something really valuable and I and that's I mean part of what I love about working at a residential facility is that you're there for these really critical moments in people's lives and in my own recovery. Cause I, I went to the treatment center where I work at now. I went there in 2021, in November of 2021. And like, I'm sure there were people there that maybe remember me, but I definitely remember like the clients that I work with. There's these moments that sometimes you get to bear witness to, to where they like make this really real connection to something that's going to be meaningful to them in the long term. Um, And being in case management, that's something that sometimes I get to directly connect people to, right? Like, because not only do I help set them up with clinical aftercare, like intensive outpatient therapy, I can set them up with that or their individual therapists that they might work with for years afterwards, if I... If I do my job well, but I also get to set them up with organizations like Colorado Artists in Recovery. If they have any inclination after like listening to Dylan's recovery skills group or doing one of the open mic nights up there on campus, if they're like, oh, this kind of lit me up in a way that I haven't felt before or haven't felt since getting sober or what have you, then I get to help connect them to that too. And that's so cool to be a part of. That is so cool to know that you can just kind of, um, I don't know, move someone along in their journey. Cause I think there were a lot of things in my own journey that took me longer than they needed to. Do you ever hook people up with jobs? Like you both
0: went to... The place that you're working yeah. right now. Do you ever
2: Yes? No. No. <laughs> um, people try to get jobs while they're there, but I I think so like, and it's interesting because that's a very that's something that people are usually very concerned about. And there is a huge overlap between like um coming back from like rock bottom in addiction and poverty. Um, so while I do not set them up with jobs, the the main reason being that like they need to focus on getting well first, they have like 30 days. That's very different usually than what most people experience in their life, which is like 30 days where it's just you focusing on getting well. You don't have to f- focus on making money. You don't have to focus on making your meals. You don't have to focus on a lot of people don't even focus on um, like getting ready, right. Doing their makeup, stuff like that. Um, so they definitely don't need to be focused on getting a job. So hopefully again, if I do my job well, I can set them up in a place like sober living, which will scholarship their first month so that they can focus in that 30 days on, just getting well. And then when they get out and they get into a supportive recovery environment, like sober living, which is part of my story. I spent a long time in sober living. They get there and then they have another month to focus on getting like a recovery job. And I have air quotes around that because usually that's like a part-timer at Starbucks that, you know, will pay for what is typically a lower rent than, than most, most rents out here in Colorado. Um, and sometimes the scholarships are even tiered, too. So it'll scholarship like 100 percent of your first month and 50 percent of your second month and then 25 of your third month. So it's even a little bit more cushioned, so you can just focus because when people start to get distracted by like, oh, God, I need to, like, figure out what my career is going to be for the rest of my life, even though I just made it back from the brink of death, people or get into long-term relationships and like really early recovery, like rehab romances, right? That's its own trope. It's such a liability that we can see like people like Dylan and I in long-term recovery, we can see how important it is to like have that really soul focus. Cause I think that's something that, we share in common with our stories. It's like really for the first year I had to like eat, sleep and breathe recovery. And it really took me that much time. Um, although part of my doing, doing my job well too, is that recognizing that not everyone has that luxury. There's particularly working on the women's side, a lot of people who have children and, you know, unless you have your kids taken away, which happens a lot. <laughs> You know, sometimes life just has other obligations for you. Um, But we try to get them as close to focus as they can, as close to comfortable as they can be so that they can focus.
1: Yeah, it's really easy to externalize, you know, and just it's like sometimes it's like anything to not look at myself, you know. So if that's spending 12 hours on Indeed in between groups uh, so I don't have to think about my life and process my what, whatever I need to, to get better. Like we see that all the time, you know?
2: Yeah. And it's like, especially people that come back in, they're like, well, I relapsed because of my husband. I relapsed because I hated my job. And it's like, you relapsed because you're an alcoholic or an addict and you're powerless over this disease that I'm also powerless over, but I yes. can see that. And it's also not really our job to tell people that mm. to tell people like, no, you're externalizing because you have to meet people where they're at. Um, so if I have a client that comes into my office and they say, my problem was my job. Well, I can't tell them, no, <laughs> your problem is you because um, they're not going to receive that. Do you hint towards it? I mean, sometimes, but like I, I don't want to shut someone down mm-hmm. and diminish trust if I'm also the person that they're trusting with the resources that they're going to use after treatment. So if I can avoid telling them that they are the problem and let them know, like, well, if your job was stressing you out, maybe you should quit your job and, I can get you a scholarship for sober living that'll keep you comfortable for a month while you look for a new one, mm-hmm. right? That's a much better way to redirect something to the same end result than being like, you're the problem, get your head <laughs> where it needs to be, you know? And that's what, like, meeting people where they're at looks like sometimes for me. Dylan, you work in a different capacity, so, like, that looks different from you. You have different objectives as a counselor that I have as a case manager. My job is really to get them to say yes
0: mm-hmm. to
2: to the choices that I feel like are conducive to their recovery, but also economically and logistically feasible. Yeah. And so I try to marry as many like healthy clinical recommendations as I can with what their life practically looks like. But Dylan's job isn't necessarily to do that. It's to bring people closer to like having those, what like the big book calls like, um, uh, I mean, spiritual experiences is one word for it, but... Breakthrough? Yeah, I mean, like, a breakthrough, right? Those realizations internally. Yeah. yeah. What do they call it in the big book? What does Dr. Seppert Th- 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 There's a it? few things that they say. psychic change.
1: Oh, profound psychological change or something like that, yeah. But, I mean, we work in tandem, too, yeah. and that's what I like. We'll, we'll get together and kind of uh, come up with a game plan for, like how we want to approach certain things too, which I think is really helpful, like being on the same page and knowing, Hey, this is what this client said in the, in this introduction. This is what I'm feeling. I think you might be able to push them towards sober living, or maybe uh I think a virtual I, IOP might be the only thing that works or um people probably don't know any of these terms we're talking about right now either. I just realized, Um, but that's fine. Uh I want to hear about, uh, your experience oh, no. so far
0: in in recovery.
1: Yeah, just the <laughs> the general essence of like what ha- that journey for you.
0: Well, I was being very selfish and drinking to die, and I thought that that's who I was, and I thought it was kind of glamorous, and I thought it was cool, and I was like, yeah, I feel all the things, and I'm. I'm the saddest person that's ever lived. And then I met Dylan, and he was, like, told me his story about – we. he was, like, four years sober when we met. Just yeah. So it was, like, that same month. Oh, wow,
1: yeah. I just got four years.
0: Yeah, and I was like, well, you were – you're living on Cap Hill and you were an IV drug user. And I I could probably kick alcohol if you can do all of that. And it was pretty inspiring. And I stuck with it because you got really mad at me when I relapsed. And I, <laughs> I was not a nice person. <laughs> so it definitely helped to like have that mirror of somebody that's been through And he's like so like A little bit fed up with me. Who's like, what are you?
2: What are you getting out of this? Basically, well, it's interesting too because I think, I mean, outside of clinical treatment, just as a member of AA, there's a lot more varying degrees to which people come into like twelve step rooms. I just doxed my program, but there's uh, varying degrees to which people come into uh, like twelve step rooms. That are usually a lot less dire mm-hmm. than clinical treatment. Cause like if, if you came into treatment, that story would probably be a little different in the sense, like, I was living with my partner and they kicked me out because I was being so awful and they told me I can either come to treatment or I can go fuck myself. Yeah. Or um what's cussing look like? Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um Yeah. And, but like 12 step rooms, people will be like, yeah, it's kind of ruining my relationship and I don't like how I feel. Mm -hmm. Um, because like you can go to a 12 step meeting at any point in your life, you know, and that's not what gets everyone sober by any means, but like, but I also hear just in that short synopsis, a lot of similarities, right? Like I got sober at 22 and I'd been drinking since I was 12 and that entire time, I was always drinking to die. And and especially when I was drinking a lot more, when I was drinking, like, two liters of tequila a day, I was drinking almost as punishment. I wasn't drinking because it was fun or because it was social. Oh, yeah. I was drinking because I felt like I deserved it. And also, like, I couldn't really tolerate the world outside of me. And I think whether people like to admit it or not, most people drink to cope. Um like even just what we consider like quote unquote normies, like you have a bad day at work and you say like, Oh, I need a drink. Yeah. Cause you don't really want to cope with the day you had. And it doesn't mean that you can't, but, but that's just kind of how alcohol is used in our societies. And I think for those of us that have, More traumatic lives or different experiences or different genetic predispositions. We get fed that culture and then we run with it. Yeah. To a detrimental point. You know, like you deserve this. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, yeah. So, yeah, you deserve this on two fronts, right? You deserve this because you deserve escape, but also you deserve this because you deserve to die. It's really an abysmal point at its, at its darkest. And so like turning to recovery, I think that's part of what makes it so hard is it's also a very foreign concept for a lot of people that drink the way or have those thoughts or rationalizations for drinking. Cause it's like, okay, well now I'm making a good choice for myself. And that's also strange. And that's also foreign, you know, physical dependency aside. <laughs>
1: Yeah, because we're comfortable like being uncomfortable, you know, like, like you said, we feel like we deserve it. We like to sit in our own shit, yeah. feel sorry for ourselves because it's easier, you know, like we don't, we don't have to face the demons. And I don't know. So it, it just feels normal eventually until terrible, just more terrible things happen, you know, it's just fucking, y'all just keep digging and digging and digging until you realize something's got to change, you know, and that looks different for everybody too. That's what's so hard about like treating this too. it. Like you need a multi-pronged approach. There's not one size fits all. We did the 30 day shake and bakes for decades, decades, you know, like let's just throw them in residential treatment. They're there for 30 days and then we'll just release them back into society. And it's just like, we, that was not effective. That was not effective at all. Like how you've been drinking heavily for 20 years and you think in thirty days, like you're going to learn all the tools? You need yeah. to to stop. Like it's not realistic. And then right. I don't know. On top of that, I mean, trauma therapy. You know, some people need that. Some people don't. Some some different different sets of skills. Different sets of coping skills need to be learned. Like it's so difficult. And then on top of that, even tracking success. Right. Like what does that look like? It's it's we have no real easy way to determine like if somebody's been successful, you know, down the road.
2: Well, that's a good point. That can kind of segue. I want to hear what you were going to say, because it it looked like you were going to say something, but that's kind of a good segue to the relapse conversation.
0: Yeah, I was just I was going to say, well, what has helped you the most and uh, like whether or not you think relapse is a part of addiction? Like, is it normal for people to relapse? Sorry, Dylan, we're setting you up.
2: Yeah, well, I think, um, I mean, for me, relapse is not a part of my story, but it played a huge part, um, especially being in sober living, because like being as far down the scale as I went, like no one is 22 and drinking two liters of tequila in total liver failure and is like fooling themselves into thinking that their life is okay, Right. I was a pretty extreme case. Um, and I also knew like that everybody around me, especially the more I started going to meetings that people were saying things like you pick up where you left off. And and people started saying that while I was in treatment, like clinicians were saying like, well. You pick up where you left off and that's just how addiction works. Like you don't get to restart when you pick up the bottle. Like sometimes people will get like two weeks, two months, maybe even two years if they're lucky of like not quite as bad drinking, but like you always get back to where you were and then you just cycle from there. And that scares the shit out of me. So
0: clinicians would tell you this. They wouldn't be like, oh, you've got Two years sober, and now you relapsed, and you should be proud of those two years? No. I mean, I don't think
2: that people don't say that, but, like...
1: I said that today to a client that just relapsed and came back.
2: Sure. Was it two years? Am I omniscient? (laughs) So I don't think that that is typically the rhetoric, because, especially, like, in the rooms, too, right? Like, because if we start saying that... I think the fear is that people will kind of be given an inch and take a mile and think that you can come back from it. And the fact is that, like, not everyone can come back. Um, And a lot of people don't. And so the messaging, by and large, I don't think is that, like, yeah, you can probably get away with, like, a couple relapses and we'll see you in a few years and hopefully you make it back. Like, that's not the message that we try to put out there. Um, But, we, I, I mean, there's also a widespread understanding that relapse is a big part of a lot of people's stories. Um, and there's definitely no shortage of clinicians at that same treatment center who relapse was a part of their story. And, and like, you know, just as many clinicians that have the attitude that like, it takes what it takes. And if, if relapse is a part of that for you, then like, that's, what's coming for you. But I don't think that, that people for whom that's a part of their story are like advocating for it. Right. Cause usually it gets worse before it gets better. And, and that's what I was afraid of. That's what I was afraid of. Like, God, how much worse can it fucking get? Because I was really close to dying, like really close to dying. I can absolutely remember what it feels like for, like, the life to be physically leaving my body more and more every day.
0: Are you still dealing with, like, physical
2: ramifications? Um... Maybe that depends on, like, the model of post-acute withdrawal syndrome, but I I don't think... So, like, my body bounced back pretty quickly from liver failure. It took about, like, nine months, and my labs were all coming back pretty normal. But again, that's because I got sober at 22, and um, even though I had been drinking for half of my life, that's still, like, a fifth of how long a lot of alcoholics are drinking for before they get sober. So the damage wasn't quite as long-term as it could have been and wasn't at that rate for as long as I had been drinking for. So like, it's not like I was drinking two liters a day since I was 12. Yeah. It builds. (laughs) Yeah. It builds for sure. Um, but I think like, uh, There's a lot of like trauma that comes from active substance use, too. And I certainly put myself in a lot of risky situations because there wasn't anything that I wouldn't do for a drink or a drug. And that trauma is probably going to follow me for a long time. So part of my recovery has kind of been being like, okay, how do I not judge that person that was very sick Um, and like also recognize that I don't have to be like seeing myself as a victim of that for the rest of my life? I don't know. That's kind of getting off track though. Dylan, what's your opinion of relapse?
1: Just to be clear, when I said that I I said that to a client, what I reinforce when I say that is it's like because coming back after a relapse, there's so much shame involved. There's yeah. so much like introspection and it's not good. You know, we already have terrible views of ourselves, our self-esteem, the confidence is just tanked, especially if you got a period of time you know especially maybe six months to to a year i mean that's huge and that's what i tell them every single thing that you learned every single day that you had sober was a fucking win you know that's another day you went out you went without like using your drink or drug and and that's huge so like the one thing that you probably won't agree with (laughs) that i feel is that the stock that we put on, uh, sobriety dates, or at least the, the talk around relapse. Um, I feel like it can be harmful sometimes. Um, and there's arguments on both sides for sure. But I, f- I feel like, and just from what I've seen over the years is like the, the, the fucking cat, the cat, <laughs> um, it, it makes it, I I don't know. Personally, it just, It seems like to people coming back, um, it it keeps them from going to the rooms. I hear a lot for a while, you know, like they know a group of people and they strung this time together and like they were a a pillar in that community, you know, and like they slip up and (laughs) and uh, they'll they'll like. Uh, of course, obviously the rooms aren't going to judge them for that, right? But they—it doesn't feel that way. So it, it's just interesting because it's like, I—I um, f- I feel like you didn't lose anything, right? Because that—that's the conception when we talk about that a lot is like, oh, I lost all this time, and I, I just—I just don't like that messaging, man. Because it's like the reality is the National Institute for Drug and Alcohol Abuse—it's the relapse rate is eighty-five percent. You know, and it's forty to sixty percent in the first six months, yeah. right and then you you sprinkle in i v users or opiate users or um drug users or just polysubstance users in general you know that that goes even higher, you know so I think that I don't know I don't know the answer you know I don't know the answer to reframing any of that, and I don't think it takes away the importance of a sobriety date either, but it's just like it's so hard to. To be the outlier, you know, like you've really got to do the work and you've really got to understand the reality of this disease. You know, when I run the opiate group, I'm like, you are rolling the fucking dice, you know, like fentanyl wasn't in everything. Like when I was using, you know, so a relapse, it was like it was rolling the dice anyway. But now these days, like you're going to fucking die. You know, that, that's what I, I tell them. Like, that's the reality, man. Like Narcan's good for the first 10 minutes you know, after a fentanyl overdose. And then after that, and it's like, who? it's just scary, man. You know? So I, I think, I think that's more to your point too, though, is it's just being realistic, but also not like realistic to the point where it's discouraging.
2: Right. Yeah. No, you're not shaming. And I don't disagree with that too. I've had a lot of sponsors like make some incredibly dubious choices about their own recovery. Um, And, like, start engaging in, like, dishonest behavior and, like, lying because they didn't want to reset their sobriety date. And that's just as harmful, to be clear, to your recovery as, like, picking up a drink, right? Just outright relapsing. Um, And, yeah, I think it's – and that's the thing is, like, it's – I'm definitely speaking more from the side of like, um, what do we tell people versus what's like the reality? Because, because again, like if I, like, I don't know that I would have gone as hard as I did if the messaging I had gotten on my first go around alcohol being my main drug of choice. I don't know that I would have gone as hard if people were like, well, you can relapse. It's probably going to be okay. Like for me, I think I needed that fear in my own recovery and it's yielded a lot of like really harmful implication. Like a lot of perfectionism was just like really allowed to flourish in that, in that kind of context. But, um, but I also think that there's a lot more people that like, it takes more than just one round of treatment or like, you know, it really doesn't matter how many relapses it takes. If you make it back, thank fucking God. Thank God. And then you have a chance at like long-term sobriety. Um, I think like the only thing you you can't walk back from is dying. So to me as a, as a person, relapses don't matter and sobriety dates don't matter as long as you're still alive. Um, it's just that like you cannot tell people that. Because because we're always going to think we're invincible and we're always going to think that we have one more use or one more drink or one more whatever. And I've seen that lead to like a lot of people dying. And I think that's the other thing about overdose, too. And like this is maybe a conversation for another uh, professional is that like overdose is not exclusive to addicts. Um, Like I have a cousin that presumably overdosed to our knowledge was not an addict. He was just doing coke at ACL. Like a lot of people do, <laughs> um, addicted or not. And he fucking overdosed and his friends who also weren't addicts and aren't a part of like our world who got scared and just left him alone to die. Um, and I think that accounts for a lot more overdose statistics too, than, uh, than we like to think. Cause that's a lot more real to people that, that, aren't around this stuff every day. And so I think like overdose in and of itself and like loss from addiction is almost like a completely different, different topic than like recovery necessarily. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I do want to say
1: though, while since you brought that up though, uh, there's a good Samaritan law and I think almost every single state now, you know, like I had, I had like three felony warrants and I had a friend fall out in my car and it was just like, obviously his life is more important than me going to jail. And it's like, I knew that there was the good Samaritan law. Right. And basically what that law is, is it's like, if you're saving somebody's life, if, if it's an overdose, if it's a medical emergency, like, and emergency services shows up and you got warrants, like you're not going to get picked up. You're protected. You're protected through this because of shit like that, you know? So to anybody listening, just know that like, Save their fucking life, man. And even if you are going to go to jail, you should fucking <laughs> save their <laughs> life anyway. <Right>?
0: Well, and <laughs> does that protect you from possession charges? Yes, as yeah, well? you won't All get it.
1: It, every it blankets you from every charge. But you gotta, you gotta trust that the police are gonna like be on the up and up too. You know, which is like, eh, who no, knows?
2: There's yeah, there's parameters around it. If if I would say like anyone that's listening to this, if they Uh, believe themselves to be in situations where they might utilize the good Samaritan law, (laughs) whether that's because you regularly use narcotics or maybe you just party with people who do just look it up and get a little familiar with it because like there are, there are boundaries around it. Right. So only one person in any given instance is protected by that law. So like if there's multiple people that are using and one person calls the cops, everyone around you is not, (laughs)
0: so get them out of there get this everyone except for the person Your drugs and keep them safe and don't
1: and then come to rehab
0: and then come
2: to rehab (laughs) with us don't keep the drugs safe. (laughs) yeah no it's very nuanced I think like there's no linear discussion around like recovering addiction that's had in a candid way so like a recovery podcast that is published by a treatment center Um, which there's a lot of those out there or published by like a, an organization that promotes substance use and mental health recovery. They're going to have to say different things than like what we're saying right now. I think that's important to note. And that's, that's a lot more understood like among people in recovery, but I do think it's important for some of the stuff to be like said out loud, you know, and that's why we're not mentioning the place that we work.
0: And yeah. that's why we're doing this, also. <laughs> yeah, to be real with people about it a little bit. What are the um, percentages of fentanyl re- relapse and then mm. death? Um, like, how many relapses lead to death? You say that sometimes you're like tempted to tell your clients that, like, if they only like seven percent of opiate users actually make it through recovery. Uh.
1: Not exactly that. It, I think long-term recovery, you yeah. know, it's, and it's less than 10%. And mind you, uh, I'd have to fact check this because these are statistics from like seven years ago. So it's probably lower now
0: Yeah,
1: for sure. You know, and then you sprinkle in if they're an IB user and then you sprinkle in meth, which I was all three because I just all or nothing, you know, yeah. and then alcohol too. Um, it's even lower. Uh, so like I said, that's why I feel like it's important to stress that a little bit in the sense that, like, I have to work hard, you know, like I have to take this seriously and I have to do the fucking work because those aren't good odds. And I never fucking win anything. But the, well, I guess except being alive and being yeah. sober. So that, that that's a win.
2: You've almost died plenty
1: of I'm, a I'm a cat. I'm a cat. I'm a cat. One question I definitely want to ask yeah, and then you can do whatever, um, as far (laughs) as, yeah, you can, whatever, follow your heart. Um, and I think this is an important question and it's one of the reasons why I thought you'd be perfect for this first episode, you know, because like you have, you're able to speak on this stuff, you know, and it's personal experience. And I talked to you about this question, right. But how is your identity as a young adult, um, and a woman person of color and a member of the LGBTQ plus community shaped your experience with addiction and recovery? Like what, what does that look like? Yeah.
2: So that actually reminds me and segues very nicely from what was just said too, because, um, like speaking of statistics, uh, when I was in treatment, one of the, cause they bring in speaker meetings on Saturday nights and the guy started his speech by being like, So this long-term success rate for substance use, uh, like addiction recovery, is like 7%. This treatment center is pretty nice, so maybe it's like 12% of alumni stay sober long-term. Now, if you're under the age of 25, knock off a couple percentage points uh, if you're a person of color, knock off a per- couple percentage points. If you are LGBTQ, knock off a couple percentage points. And I was sitting in there. This was like maybe my first week, maybe second of treatment. I still know like basically nothing about recovery. And I'm like counting on my fingers. I'm like, I think I'm in the negatives. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I have negative chance. Um, <laughs> and then and then he goes on to say to, you know, like IV drug users have a higher statistical percentage of recidivism into addiction and even like tobacco users nicotine users have a higher risk of relapse and those are just the statistics but then he goes on to say like if you do intensive outpatient therapy which is this IOP we've been talking about add a couple percentages back. If you do sober living, add a couple percentages back and then however long you stay in there, the percentage increases. Um if you do AA in the long term, you've got like a 30% chance, which is actually like double what it is for just doing residential treatment alone. And I was like, okay, so I'm not completely powerless in this. It's not just about the fact that I just happened to have gotten this a little younger. Um, it's not just about the fact that, like, I happen to be a person of color, happen to be a queer woman of color. Like, I actually do have some, some power based off of the decisions I make right here, right now, in my first go round, and that's part of what motivated me. Besides just the fear of relapse, it was like, okay, I know right off the bat that I'm at higher risk because of all of these identity markers. So I'm gonna go hard as fuck in my aftercare plan to make sure as much as humanly possible that there's like no chance that I relapse, um, which is why I did literally everything you could do. Um, but I did all of my aftercare in Fort Collins slash Loveland, Colorado. So I walked in my first AA meeting and within the first few meetings, I realized there was like no people of color, there's very few women, because this was after COVID and, like, people were still coming back from in-person meetings. Um, there's, like, no one under the age of 30. And I suddenly felt really alone again. And I was like, shit, does anyone like me do this? Because it seems like they don't. It seems like, you know, those statistics are pretty on the money. Um, I think of myself as very lucky to, like... I think anyone that makes it into a 12 step room can consider themselves lucky because if you put in the effort to like raise your hand and say you're a newcomer, you're going to be welcomed in with open arms. That is like a luxury that we're all afforded if we just have the courage to like raise our hand. But I was no exception to that. They welcomed me in regardless of my demographics and um, kind of showed me how to love myself and made it a lot easier for this this seed of like otherness that was kind of planted in me from the get go to be nurtured into like motivation. Cause I was like, well, the next, you know, young person of color is going to need to see that at least like one other fucking Mexican is sober in Fort Collins. The next like young woman that's under the age of 25 is going to need to see me in there with more than just like a couple of days strung together and know that long-term recovery is possible. The next queer young person, cause that's, a battle in and of itself, even still, like they need to know that it's possible and they need to see more than anything else, just how much work went into it. Um, cause that's the other thing I'm pretty vocal about is like how much work I put in because like my story would not be a zero relapse story if it weren't for the amount of work that I did. Um, my story would not be a zero relapse story if it were not for the fact that I was perfectly situated to do all of the components of aftercare that I did. Um, and like all of the little accolades that I picked up along the way, like getting recovery coach certified, finishing my undergraduate degree, house managing a sober living. Um, those things were only possible because I did literally all of the work that you could possibly do because I had no reservations left that like I had any better inkling of how to do life than the people around me that had long-term sobriety so that surrender for me was huge um I I think that's not specific to my identity but but there is a part of being like a young woman of color that like from the get-go i I've always had this attitude of like, I'm not actually afforded the same luxuries as other people. So why would my recovery be any different? Yeah. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. I, being a
1: young person in recovery is so important, you know, for other people to see because you 30 and under, I, I remember I'm like, yeah, there's no fucking way, you know, yeah, like, Dylan's
2: I, not 30, by the way, you know <laughs> what? It's <He's> over.
0: <laughs> 30 and over now.
2: Continue.
1: I I've yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for that. It's my birthday next week. So Jurassicophobia is <laughs> is alive and well today.
2: You were um, saying you remember being 30 and under. Yeah, and
1: just it's discouraging as fuck, you yeah. know? And like pff, shit, I relapsed a lot. And just knowing that like I think I was talking to you about this the other day or you or both about if you go to a certain meeting, like an opiate meeting, whatever. And, um, they ask, Hey, who, who here's got more than a year sober? It's not a lot of hands. And, and it's just, it's, it's so nice to be able to see somebody that age. Um, and you really get through to them too. Like I see it all the time and they, they they love you and, and, the fact that it's like, Hey, I can still have fun. I can feel fulfilled. I can have a good life, like sans substances, you know, like I don't need to party and like go drink all the time at 22 um, because that's what everybody else is doing. You know Um, I think it's really important and it's really cool that you're a case manager too, you know? So just all of that together is, is super important. And I think it's really inspirational to, to our clients is all I'm going to say. Listen, I'm going to be mean to you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, and I think that's a thing too. That's why I really love case management specifically is like, cause I am the person that tells them the next thing to do. And I remember sitting in my, thank God I was desperate. Cause I sat in my case manager's office and was like, you could tell me that I need to go to jail for the next six months and I'd stay sober and I would do it. No hesitation. But you know, my clients don't have that. They have me who's like, listen, I'm not telling you this because like I'm making money off of it. Cause I've got friends that are profiting off of it. Cause by the way, like no one is profiting from yeah. addiction treatment. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure somebody is, but the guys it's not in Rey, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it is not me. Yeah. I'm telling you this because this is what I did. And like, I don't know how to get sober any other way. Like I'm giving you my suggestion as an addict, um, an addict who statistically had like zero fucking chance, mm-hmm. negative, chance. negative, chance. negative. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Negative chance of staying sober. And this is what I did and it worked. So depending on how close you want to get to that or how much you see of yourself in me and in my story, you are more than welcome to try to do as much as I did, and I will help you get there. As much as you're willing to do, I will help you get there and make sure it's as positive an experience as possible. You're going to the best of those places that I can possibly send you to. Like, I, I try to, yeah, make them see that it is real, and I'm not just pitching it because it's what I'm supposed to say. It's like, that is what I did. <laughs> so
0: you're, like, a big advocate for sober living, and... I don't know if, because I didn't know until a few minutes ago, but uh, what's the difference between a sober living and a halfway house? And why did you find it so beneficial?
2: Yeah. So halfway house is usually court ordered and they're usually like bunk beds and cockroaches and it's, people smoking dope in the bathrooms. It's and- a
1: terrible place. I was, <laughs> I was there and yeah. I, I was in a room full of sex offenders with uh, childhood trauma. So that was great, you know, and people overdosing left and right. It, it It's people who don't care if they're there or not, you know.
2: Right. They're there because they have to be there. And the the facilities themselves are not set up in a way to be like reinforcing whatsoever. And that's the thing with the carceral system and everything attached to it is that it's not supposed to make you feel good. It's not supposed to make you want to come back. Sober living is supposed to make you feel like you have dignity again. It's supposed to help you live in, Supportive, peer-led environment in the long term that is conducive to you getting your dignity back. So a lot of these houses, sober living houses, not halfway houses, um, a lot of halfway houses are near like homeless shelters and are in lower income neighborhoods um, or like very close to the prisons or jails that people just got out of. Sober livings, by and large, are gonna be like in a residential area, like it's, it's like what I was telling you earlier, it's like a multi-family home, um, single family home with like four or five bedrooms, probably in an upper scale neighborhood to accommodate that level of like space. Um, there might be like an elementary school across the street, you know, you, you probably wouldn't be able to tell. Um, and so like you know, the houses are furnished. They've got like art up on the walls and you are getting like you ate on a weekly basis and breathalyzed on a weekly basis. And there's a person living there full time called a house manager who makes sure that you're in line. But I needed that accountability because I... I couldn't trust myself yet. Like, I had no reason to. I had never done anything in my life esteemable enough to, like, warrant trust. (laughs) So, um... I think, like... Being in an environment with other women in recovery, too, was really helpful because they kind of taught me how to grow up. A lot of them had more time than I did, especially like my house manager, who is the LB that was talking about earlier. She happened to be my house manager. Yeah. Um, And she really showed me what it meant to live in recovery. And you watch other women with the same goal as you have walk through adversity and walk through like seemingly impossible situations and stay sober through it. And I just needed to know that that was possible. And I needed to live with people who were doing that and hear and watch how they were doing that. Um, and it taught me how to keep my room clean, which I had never (laughs) done in my life. So that was helpful too
0: that's something i got out of being sober too. Yeah. i'm 30 years old and my house is finally clean. Yeah. It's an amazing feeling. It's crazy. But you were saying also that um the sober livings for women especially here they're not as available?
2: No, yeah, they're super sparse and and honestly like part of it could be because you know, for a long time there was this attitude that like women can't be alcoholics. They certainly can't be drug addicts or IV drug users, um, that was like a men's problem. That was like an attitude that people had for a long, long time. There's also like stereotypes still. And, and maybe even statistics that support this, that there's just more men out there who suffer from addiction than women, which per capita, I don't buy it for a second. Um, but in terms of services that are available, like there's not even like gender specific, Substance use treatment for women out here that is accessible for most people like there's, I think, one place in Denver that takes insurance. All of the other gender specific programming for women don't take insurance because they're long term programs. It's really prohibitive for most people. Um, so God forbid you're like a woman with trauma who cannot be in a substance use treatment center with men. God forbid you like need to be in sober living that's close to your kids and you have to go to a house. It's like 30 miles away because there's just nothing. So there's a lot of really great women in recovery specifically. And, and some men in recovery too, who are opening women's Uh, sober livings with that goal in mind of making it more accessible and making it more local to people who need it. But there's a long way to go. Yeah. And and like, don't even get me started, like the number of sober livings that accept women and children, fucking forget it. You're in a safe house if that's what you need Um, with, again, no focus on sobriety necessarily. So it's tough. There's a huge resource desert for women seeking recovery.
0: What do you think needs to happen for that to become more available? Is it government? Is it
2: just people? Yeah, I think it's multifaceted for sure. I think just like most like reasons for things becoming equitable, um, It's like government mandated, right? So I think that like there needs to be just more legislation around like equitable access to recovery resources in general. Like, and that includes coming for like insurance companies who keep it prohibitive and keep it like the 30 day status quo, which um, again, statistically is not necessarily effective um, or at least not as effective as like 90 days, but also like um, requiring that like, Every company that opens a men's homes needs to open a woman's home, like stuff like that. I don't know if that would be feasible specifically, but there's a legislative component to it. And then I also think that like the people that are forking out money to sober livings um, that are doing grants, I think that they should prioritize women's sober livings. Um, at least substantially enough to where like people actually listen, because the same grants that award sober living scholarships that prioritize i v drug users and people of color um That's certainly necessary, but it's only for scholarships. It's not necessarily for like the houses themselves. So I think the focus needs to change a little bit on that. Um, And this is speaking from somebody that doesn't write the grants and doesn't write the legislation. So there's probably some of that already out there, but it needs to be more. It just needs to be more because the need is more than than what we have access to.
1: Yeah, you bring up a good point like from these, from these settlements, from these big pharmaceutical companies, yeah. you know, the billions. Right. And so that's being dispersed across the U S but it's like, it, it's kind of chaotic, you know, and a lot of it's going to like residential treatment centers or um IOPs and stuff like that. But it's interesting because they don't realize like what happens after they leave the residential treatment center. Maybe those people should get money too, you know, or more of it. Like, because aftercare is huge, you know, so I think some of that money should be funneled into sober livings.
2: Yeah. And regulating sober livings in general is like almost its whole own issue and making sure that like the people running the sober livings are running it ethically and safely. And it's not run by people who are trying to turn a profit on people trying to get well, like that's sober living as an industry because it's not Clinical necessarily is fraught with its own set of issues, and there's regulatory boards that could probably be tightened up a little more. And there's always improvements to be made. It's 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 a field that is directed towards like the most vulnerable uh, of populations, which traditionally are taken advantage of. So, so our
0: listeners, the laymen or lay ladies. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the lame <men?
0: laughs> the laymen, lame
1: lame men
0: the lame men and women who are listening to this podcast right now instead of doing drugs or something cool, maybe while they're doing drugs but
1: why not both <laughs>
0: what yeah. can they do to help? what do you think or somebody with this is going to be like a multifaceted question, somebody that knows somebody that needs help what are what steps can people take to help themselves or the lives of others around them or even people
2: they don't know? Um, I get this question a lot. Like I think someone that's very, uh, open about my recovery. There's, there's a lot of people throughout my life who know people who need help. And so they'll come to me and be like my, uh, friend's little sister needs treatment. What can I do? And like, I think that's, that's its own thing. I think my number one piece of advice to those people who are like, working with people who are ready to seek treatment, get them into treatment. Um, And the way to do that really is just pick a treatment center, point and shoot, maybe like look at some Google reviews, but they're all going to be mixed. um, And just call an admissions person because the admissions people are like trained to make sure that your insurance is taken. They're trained to make sure that you get the care that you need. Um, I'd say that there's really no reason to go out of state. Most states have pretty like within their own state have pretty okay resources unless you're going for something more specific, but just get on the phone with an admissions person and they can point you in the right direction. That's huge. Or like get in my DMS. I'll help (laughs) point you in the right direction too. Um, And we'll link her Instagram. Yeah. Link my Instagram. Um, and then the other piece, too, like what can people do that just want to support and maybe they don't know a ton of addicts like that's OK, too. I think allies to this community are always so needed. I think like carrying Narcan baseline is is something that everyone that considers themselves an advocate or an ally to recovery can. Have. Do you know places that distribute Narcan and can we link them as well, Dylan? Yeah, Dylan, <laughs> you can. Um, there's a lot of places you can get Narcan, um, especially like, uh, I think it's September is like national recovery month. Um, there's like a national recovery day too. And usually there's events in most towns and cities that they'll hand out Naloxone, which is Narcan. Um, pretty sure you can order it from either your state or federal government website for free. Um, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of places where you can get Narcan. It's becoming a lot more readily accessible. And I'll be happy to send you some links Dylan, to where people can get it and just keep it in your car, keep it in your purse. Especially if you're going to like concerts and shit, you just, you never know. Like Dylan said, it's good for 10 minutes, which is a pretty quick window. Um, all things considered, not when you're ODing I'm sure but it's it's a pretty short window if you're like panicking and looking around for the next person around you that has norcan so just carry it yourself Um, and the other thing is just like stay informed and like listen, like see how it is affecting you. Cause most people are affected by addiction in some way. Um, just like, don't turn a blind eye because I think it's so easy if you're not an addict to see people suffering from addiction, especially people that are like visibly suffering from addiction, like, uh, like the houseless population. Um, it's so easy to see them as different, but like, and sure Dylan can relate to this too, but like it is vital to my recovery and to the fact that I want to stay alive, that I don't see myself as any different than the people that walk through our doors. I don't see myself as different in any way from the people that are still suffering from addiction visibly or otherwise um, because I'm not different and we're, we're all the same species. Um, And whether you're an addict or not, Depending on the model you believe in, like, uh, whether you believe it's genetic, it's like a matter of chance, really. So, like, exercise compassion and and stay as informed as you can. Vote when you can, you know. That's all pretty. Who are you voting for? <laughs> Who am I voting for? Uh, local, local. <laughs> you can follow me on Instagram and I'll post my ballot. <laughs> yeah. Follow her Instagram. We're linking it. Yeah. Bother her. Yeah. I'm pretty vocal about my own recovery too. So even if you just like need a dose of hope every once in a while, I don't post as often anymore because I am pretty busy and happy with my life nowadays. Um, but I post a lot about my recovery and, and my own milestones and, and I try to be like a beacon of hope from people. And, and I am in recovery from like a lot of things besides substance use. Like I'm in recovery from long-term mental health um, disorders and trauma and self-harm and eating disorders. And most people, those are wrapped up in one way or another. So I talk about all of that on my socials as well.
1: One last question. And it's probably the most important one. Are you ready?
2: Yeah.
1: Is it stupid? Why would you say that? (laughs) What's the question? Well, uh, would you rather be attacked by 50 duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck?
2: 50 duck-sized horses. Horses are not aggressive. Ducks are aggressive, and it doesn't need to be the size of a horse. I said attacked. Um... Mm, I stand by my answer.
1: Okay, fair enough. <laughs> that, that's all I have.
0: They are shy. They're skittish. Yeah. So if one well, ducks out, aren't too. ducks aren't skittish.
2: <laughs> ducks, <laughs> ducks are very aggressive. Yeah, I have been attacked by a goose, so I'm speaking from a place of trauma on that one. All right.
1: Well, thanks, Izzy. Appreciate Thank you so
2: much. Thank you, guys.
1: You can find our links and other resources in our show notes. We'll link at Isabel's Instagram so you can tell her how wrong she is about horse sized ducks.
0: And if you want to hear us interview a nonprofit or an individual that you think is doing good work, you can shoot us an email at bloomscrollingpodcast at bloomscrollingpodcastgmail.com or DM us on Instagram at bloomscrollingpodcast.
1: This podcast is brought to you by OffMeta Media, and it's edited and produced by me, Dylan Beresford, and Monica Warrens. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Bloomscrolling Podcast. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Bye. Thanks. Bye. Bye. We're done. Yeah, we're done.
2: Yeah. <laughs> this machine kills fascists.
0: <laughs> there's um. There's like five. Uh. There's a little sticker over here. There was a patch. He had like this, this fabric kills fascists. Um, the last time that I relapsed, I called Dylan over and I was blackout drunk and I was a total asshole. And then I got him a little cactus and I was like, this cacti kills fascists. <laughs> so. This is good uh, apology gift
2: You're going to get.
0: Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> On the other side, I wrote, I'm sorry for being a prick.
2: That's why it was like.
0: Cactus.